Welcome to uh, Not Handy with Handguns. Welcome to Molding Masculinity. This is the problem of having uh, alliterations to all of your podcasts. Uh, they, all of them jump to mind at the same time when you start to do the introduction. I'm Tom, uh, here with Philip today. And uh, today we're going to be discussing something that I think pulls off of last week's episode, but definitely stands on its own ground that we have a lot to talk about. Uh, would you like to introduce our topic, Philip? Sure, yeah. So today we will be talking about the stereotype of the emotionless man or the uh, robot man, or it, it kind of uh, goes by, I don't, I don't think there's any like consensus name for this stereotype. Uh, but yeah, the idea that men are um, supp either supposed to be or are, uh, you know, emotionless, um, you know, pure logic machines and, and, uh, you know, should like, uh, I think maybe the stoic archetype uh, is perhaps maybe one of the most common ways of putting this. So we'll be chatting about that and yeah, what we think about it. I'm glad you've immediately off the bat brought up the stoic archetype, because I think that's the part of this that perhaps I fell, uh, there was a, tra a trap fall for me. I want to say as a kid, but also like as a young adult, I have multiple times fallen into the like, what, like, you don't tell yourself you need to be stoic, but you're telling yourself you need to be all the things that stoicness is. And it's mm -hmm. that's leads down a rabbit hole of several issues that I think both of us have uh, today. Uh, you know, I mean, like, you know, to talk about today, um, you know, one of the elements that I found in discussing this and in diving into this and in, in, in this for me, it fell really closely along something that happened when I was kind of transferring from elementary into middle school and that like transitional period that you have as, you know, as you mature and grow. And it was this period where I was, I was very intellectual, I don't know if that's really the right word, but like academic, I was really into school. I was really into learning. And, uh, and I was really in, in like along with that came with a certain amount of like, empathy like discussion of emotions discussion of empathy discussion of of, of the humanities right because the humanities kind of come with ac academics and that was kind of the direction i was going in elementary and then suddenly i discovered an a, like an attraction to girls and in seeking out information from uh, from men of like how to pursue that attraction, I was given a lot of bad advice that was, well, girls don't like you to have any emotions. Girls don't like you to feel these things. Girls don't like you to be smart. No, put away the books. Don't be a nerd. Don't uh, like be all nerdy about how people feel. Don't be all emo. Don't do all these things. And, and to be frank, it sent me in the opposite direction of what uh, girls were actually in any way interested in. But it also sent me down a real bad path developmentally yeah for sure and you know i remember getting a lot of the same stereotype uh advice uh from uh fortunately not directly from like my parents but definitely from uh a lot of like adult men in my like sort of extended family um my mom was uh, as as sort of a nerdy personality herself was very intentional about making sure that I knew that like academic pursuits and being, you know, generally nerdy or whatever was not something to be ashamed of. Um, you know, not, not, uh, not the social awkwardness and, 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 you know, sometimes antisocial behavior that is kind of packaged up with that stereotype, 
but that you know there was nothing to be ashamed of about um pursuing academic interests or or liking you know um things that that may be related to like math or you know intelligence or whatever um so I was fortunate in avoiding that, but, you know, it's impossible to escape that, um, uh, you know, especially growing up in like the 90s um, and early 2000s, uh, there was a plethora of media that was, uh, you know, I mean, Steve Urkel and uh, just tons of <laughs> examples of of the nerdy, unappealing guy who, um it like totally sucks up until the point that like uh, Steve Urkel in particular up until the point uh, that drop and drops the uh, uh, all the nerdy parts and then becomes like cool and handsome and awesome because he's all not interested in any of that anymore. I, I think an important thing to say about this too is that it is more than like I, I think this is something that we often kind of conflate with being a societal image right of the idea that uh, that men are like that masculinity actively pulls men away from academic interests and and, and I, I you know and I, I want to, I want us to stay on topic here and talk and be talking about empathy and emotion as well and that you know that our typical teaching of masculinity pulls us away from those things and there's a significant amount of academic study study actually representing this and showing this uh, in my own like looking into the subject I came across an article uh, and so a personal little thing that I enjoy to do is to uh, showcase the lengthy, terrible wording that scientists put to their articles. This article is titled, and I quote, High school boys, gender and academic achievement does masculinity negatively impact boys grade point averages by Jill E. Yavorsky, Claudia Buk. Buchman, Buckman, Buckman. Um, we're going to roll with that. I'm terrible at name pronunciations. And Aaron Miles. It's from the Ohio State University. And something that they found, they did a, they they set up a sort of sliding scale and uh, of of masculinity to um, kind of measure where these kids were at in masculine presentation, like in their own presentations of masculinity. And this is, of course, a difficult thing to do because identifying what masculinity is is a whole element of what this whole podcast is. But to the point, what they discovered through the study was that when controlling for race and socioeconomic status, masculinity is associated with a significant decline in overall GPA. They found that masculinity is more detrimental to some boys' achievements in female-typed subjects, such as English, but not in the subjects you know, like such as math that are often more uh, masculine-typed. Uh, and so the, the, what they found was suggested that uh, boys' achievement is often seen as incompatible with performing masculine, masculinity in normative ways. So basically it's saying that if you're smart, you can't be masculine. And I think this directly correlates with having emotional intelligence as much as it does with having whatever you would want to quantify as regular intelligence, right? Like, because uh, you have to exercise those things in order to achieve them. You don't achieve emotional intelligence overnight. You have to exercise that in order to achieve it. And I think uh, these elements of masculinity pull people away from exercising that. For sure. And it's interesting because the, 
you know, like pointing out specifically there that like um, it's more heavily seen in um, the, um, for lack of a better term, softer subjects of like English and and things like that, which um, have a real impact on on uh, you know people being able to appreciate uh, more things in their adult lives. Um, I know personally, just like having that discouragement uh, around that subject really hampered my ability to understand um, particular uh, subject matter related to like liberal arts type stuff. Um, and, you know, obviously since I went to school for computer science, I didn't take a ton of those classes, but, you know, in reflecting on that, some of the most impactful classes I took in college were, um, history or, um, language. Um, you know, a lot of the, the STEM classes I took in college were interesting, but they were largely, um, deep and narrow into some particular fields of like computer theory or whatever they weren't um, they weren't as impactful in my day-to-day -day life as some of the um, college classes that I took uh, in non-STEM areas um, and you know I think a lot of people a lot of men end up having this like because of the lack of emotional intelligence developing that at a young age, we get to adulthood with no, with having suppressed that and not having developed that skill or that talent. And as a result, you have a lot of men who like beyond all the, you know, pressures, social pressures to generally keep your emotions to yourself, right? And not having good ways of expressing those, like even the men who see that as bad and, there has been a, a, a broader cultural pushback to allow men to be a little bit more expressive about their emotions. Um, even, even when given that permission, I think a lot of us end up sitting there and being like, well, I, I don't know how, <laughs> like I feel allowed to do it, but I don't know how to express myself to recognize my emotions. Um, I, I feel that from time to time. Um, the, there's a quote from uh, uh, Dr. James <clears throat> Antoni. I, can't, I don't know if it's Antoniatis or Antoniatis. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm just going to go with Antoniatis, um, who's a GP and psycho, <clears throat> psychodynamic psychotherapist, uh, says, um, in order to not show your emotions, quote, in order to not show your emotions, it's more effective if you can deny them, even to yourself. As a result, you get men who can't speak or even think about their emotions. Instead, they just feel unwell or that something is not right. And, and that's the end of the quote. Um, and man, that really rung, rung true to me, especially since a lot of like, there's been a lot of talk recently about sort of these disaffected young men, uh, you know, we, you know, there's been comparisons between millennials and, and, and uh, older generations and, and what wealth point they're at and all this stuff, trying to capture this idea of like, why are there all these men in particular, but young people, you know, who just are, are upset and can't pinpoint why. And while I think there's a, an interesting discussion to be had there entirely that probably deserves its own episode, um, I think that a component of that is specifically 
um, we don't know how to recognize <laughs> why we feel a certain way. Uh, I eventually came to an answer for that for myself that really put a, a big light on things. But, you know, it, I, I do know ha having experienced that general feeling and getting very slow to get to the point of, of where I could recognize what that is and where it was coming from, um, I have to imagine so many of us are in the same position of just, I, I feel allowed to have the emotion, but I don't know how to approach it. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I think there's, there's so much, there's so much that relates to me through that too. Yeah. I mean, I've spent a lot of my life after high school. Cause I mean, like this was, I, I really spent all of my high school years diving deep into the stoic element of things because I thought that, and, and again, this ties kind of into last week's episode. I, you know, I had anger was so tied to my identity of masculinity uh, and be, the, the, you know, like the idea of being threatening was deeply tied to my idea of masculinity. I thought in order to be cool, in order to seem like a functioning man, I needed to threaten everyone around me. I needed to uh, seem like this kind of a dangerous kind of person. And I dove so deep into that, and, and, and an important element of that to me was this idea of not showing any emotion, therefore denying yourself any emotion. Don't feel these kind of a ways about things. And when you're a teenager and you have already so much to process about everything going on in your life, that is such a bad, toxic route to take. And it was, yeah, like all of my young adult years were kind of wrapped up before I went to college. I was all wrapped up in trying to process all of that uh, lacking emotion and then entering college and having so many of those classes like you just described. It, like, yeah, I was on the STEM path. Those STEM classes were very vital to me, were very important to me. It's why I'm able to produce things like this, because I went through media production. Then I went through like psychology, which is a lighter end of STEM. It was also extremely, uh, you know, like 90% of my classes were all women um, because, again, the way that we put gender roles on fields and, and, and I'm, I'm digressing here, but just, I, I, I gotta put, I gotta put that on a, on a side marker over here. We're going to talk about that in a moment too, but I mean, it left, yeah, the, the, those classes were all important to me. They all taught me a lot about what I needed to do in my industries and in my fields. But the things that changed my life were always these classes that had nothing to do with what I was trying to do in my, like in my industry it was classes like world religion where I under like where I learned about all the other religions in the world that I had never heard anything about. It was classes like the, the classes that taught me little tiny nuggets of emotional intelligence about like, hey, here's something that everyone else experiences very similarly to you. And here's some some guidance on how to process that. Now, to dive down that idea of fields being so genderized and it being so recent in a lot of ways, something that happened to me a few years ago, I mean, like in, in psychology, we always had, you know, there's the wall of white men, which is everybody who has graduated from that program. And it's, you know, it's, oh, you always see all these classes going back to like 1905 and it's all white guys. And it was interesting to me in both psychology where I see this and you would see this direct cutoff in the 1980s where it becomes goes from being a wall of white men to becoming a wall of white women. And like the same thing happens mm. with um, 
my wife is a veterinarian. I went to her veterinary school. And I remember like one of the very first things I noticed when I walked into that school was the same thing. The wall of white men in like 1980 suddenly becomes a wall of white women. And it's, there's something there that happened in the culture that we never talk about that I think is very valuable that we need to talk about. And it's not just a matter of like women entering the workforce. We immediately segregated our workforce in a lot of ways that are telling about, I think, what we are as a society. Oh, yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is I was just thinking as you were bringing up the field of psychology about how uh, particularly my field, computers, is experiences a similar but slightly different. And you'll be interested to see where this goes. Uh, thing because if you get into and you have to if you go to school for this the history of computer science um, a lot of the early pioneers are women and the reason for that is that early on you know computers were seen as a secretarial item uh, of a kind and um, like a typewriter um, and so it was uh, when it was when computers started being adopted into the military in particular um, it was women who were sort of given them as the thing to manage and do. And, um, you know, so the first computer language, uh, computer programming language was invented by a woman. Um, the first the first use of the term a bug to describe a error in a computer program. Similarly, there's a there's a lot of um, very big women early in the history of computer science uh, for a gendered reason. Uh, but you know, as a result, you know, computers really seemed poised to be this sort of area that was like, um, as they continued to grow and expand in their usefulness, um, be very, you know, started very much in a feminine sort of position of, of lots of women were in this and in very into computers and the enrollments in uh, programs focusing on computers had a lot of women in them. And it was around the same time as you're talking about that there was this big marketing push that they took to advertise these new personal computers um, to be sort of uh, a cool thing that you can get your young male child. And you saw this like massive influx of like particularly white dudes into computer science and a massive suppression of women. So it went from being a lot of women uh, and to being mostly white guys. And now we talk about how computer science and computers and technology have this huge white male problem of being like all white guys and their you know, behavior or whatever. But it's, it's interesting because that was, that's actually an artifact of you know, about 40 or so years ago of, of a cultural, of that same cultural shift um, in, in the sort of the opposite way of, of the one you described. Um, so we, we've actually witnessed a profession swap its genderedness from women to men. And it's traceable to a, something very sort of unremarkable, like a, a, an attempt to sell a bunch of computers and how that had an impact on the cultural consciousness around technology in general. Um, as this cool thing for boys to do. Yeah, and I mean, in all of these things, they also fall along these emotional gendered lines that we're talking about. I mean, like, 
Psychology and veterinary medicine are fields that require an enormous amount of emotional intelligence. They require an enormous amount of empathy. People enter the veterinary field because they care about animals. People enter, enter the psychology field because they care about other people and because they, they want to take care of other people. And we have this idea that exists within our society that men shouldn't want to take care of other people or that that's just a not a super masculine thing to do. So young boys who are just more or less taught growing up that that's not a masculine thing to do. Don't pursue those fields. Um, meanwhile, like we were taught this thing that like it's masculine to be very logical and to be very stoic and to approach problems in this mathematical like solution based sort of way that then lends itself to computer sciences and to mathematics and things like that. And it's like those aren't real archetypes they don't need to, it doesn't need to exist that way no you know like you're not a functional human being if you only have one of those things and not the other like you can't be purely on one one end of that or the other those are elements of a fully constructed human being to be able to be logical reasonable and and handle problems in that kind of a logic-based solution while also having emotional intelligence and empathy and caring about other people there's no reason that anybody man or woman or or masculine uh, uh presenting or feminine presenting shouldn't be able to do any either one of those fields uh adequately well in any sort of a way so yeah and you know the irony of of that too is that like as someone who's you know been doing professional software engineering for you know about a decade now um people who are like that like the people who like fully embrace that stereotype and just go completely ham on you know being nothing but like a logic monkey or whatever like they're actually bad programmers at least when it comes to developing like a product that people care about using they're 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 good you know, they, they understand how to write code very well, but like a lot of times they need to be working on like systems type stuff that's like in the background because it like, you know, you put people who have no, who don't have like sort of an emotional connection with the thing that they're making in code and they go like, oh, I, I changed this thing because it was way more efficient and functionally it's the same. And it's like, well, okay, but no one wants to use this. You know, uh, even if it is, it's like, um, you know, a, a, a failure to understand the importance of like say presentational elements in software to say like how it looks actually matters just as much as how it functions. Um, and they tend to eschew and make worse software as a result. Um, you can see that in a lot of the early software, it's very unfriendly when it didn't actually have to be. Um, but it was viewed as, uh, you know, a, a froofy thing to, to care about how it looks. Yeah, that was kind of immediately where my mind went was like all the unfriendly user interfaces I've hit that were explained to me of like, well, but it functions. It, it is, it is logical. And I'm like, well, it maybe to you, but like, you know, like, you know, this idea of like, well, but I know where it is. Yeah. But you have to have the empathy to understand that other people who have not spent 30 years doing this, don't know where that is, don't know how to find that thing. And that this is not a, a user friendly interface. And right? everyone should know, has an intuition about this, whether they realize it or not. And this is the analogy I always use when, when talking about it, 
which is that like I could give you, let me step back and say, I could give you an Excel sheet with thousands of data points, or I could give you a graph, right? And the they're the same data. Functionally, they represent the same information. So, but but which one would you rather have? Every single time it's the graph because you can look at a graph and visually go, oh, I see how this relationship works and like what this is trying to say. Whereas if I gave you, you know, a thousand rows of numbers, you'd be like, I have, I have no idea what, how to even approach what this is saying. Uh, you would immediately go like, what I need to do is graph this, you know, or to put it into some sort of visual representation. Um, you know, that, that kind of human understanding is very important to making uh, good things. Um, and I've definitely seen the struggles of some people who don't have that kind of connection to their, to their uh, work or their field uh, struggle to um, understand why they aren't getting the kind of performance results that they want when it comes to you know being effective at their jobs. Yeah. And I think that kind of brings us to the next logical step, which uh, brings us also the long pause of how do we all get better at this? <laughs> mm. um, and I think that's a hard answer with a different answer for every person almost. I mean, like, you know, like I talked about, like college was a lot of my uh, really entering into this. Also, just something this is taking a step aside from where we're at right now but i for me a very very important element of this was having real in-depth friendships with people like you know those people you have those conversations where you dive into real deep emotional places where neither of y'all really intended to go like having real talk with people having just real emotional conversations it, it it that exercises those muscles right that exercises that emotional mm -hmm. intelligence and like you start to understand you want when you understand other people you understand yourself better and so seeking out an understanding of other people helps you understand yourself better and that's i think that's one of the many 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 steps to this but i mean like or not steps i guess but directions to, to that for me was something very helpful was those friendships. And that's a hard thing though, as men to, to sometimes seek out. Right. And I mean, and like, you know, and something that this is another element of this that like bothers me in our society is when you see that modeled, when you see that pursued and when you see that in real life, people often like look at it in a lot of the wrong kind of ways. Like something that bothered me in, um, uh, Captain America, or not Captain America, uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. There was a lot, and I mean, I'm super cool with like shipping any fictional characters together. We need more LGBTQ represent representation in media, but it kind of bugged me that like people were immediately shipping like Falcon and Captain America purely because they had a good relationship with each other and they mm. went to some deep places with each other. And it's like, no straight men should be able to do that with one another too like that's not an item of being in a like relation like a like a like a you know that kind of a relationship with somebody that's just a normal relationship you should have with your close friends like yeah for sure and i think you know it's a sort of uh, a weird overcorrection of you know before it was like you know any affection shown between two men it's like oh it's gay 
and you know now it's like any affection uh now any affection show between two minutes like oh it's gay yes. you know? <laughs> it's like um, I w- like i'm with you i want more of that too but like we we gotta like we need some wholesome representation of of two straight dudes hugging it out you know yes uh, as well as <laughs> representation of of uh two gay dudes hugging it out you know and i mean um, and- and, and, and you hit on an important thing too, though, that you, when this was in the negative way, well, and sort of a positive way, ah, man, this is, this one is one with nuance. So like right now I'm reading right. the autobiography of Malcolm X and in looking through some discussions about this, I'm hitting a lot of people who feel very strongly that Malcolm X may have been LGBTQ, but also almost every discussion of this I see is penned on the fact that he had really he had a really deep relationship and friendship with a couple of men in his life. And I'm like, no, those are just good friendships. I mean, like, it's cool if he was, if he, and this is also another element of this is I don't think we should out historic figures uh, who did not out themselves, but you know, like, you know, we, we don't get to decide what his uh, sexuality or representation was like. I, I don't oh know. yeah, but for sure. He's not a fictional character, right? We don't get to make that up. You know, it's, it's one thing to to have fanfics about fictional characters. I don't think we should ever shoot down like a fanfic about a fictional character. But when we're talking about real people, we're talking about real people. But yeah, it just sure, bugs yeah. me. Every time a healthy relationship between two men comes up, we we yeah, like you said, it, we either look at it as like, oh well that's gay or like oh yay that's gay and it's like we got to find the like ah, i'm stumbling all over my words right here but i mean yeah like if it is a gay relationship that is fantastic that is great if it is a healthy relationship of friends that's also great we don't need to like it isn't immediate like i don't know i don't know you know where no, I'm trying I, to go. I i know exactly what you mean because you know um i i think the frustration stems from the fact that um, like I see this a lot where guys who feel like, like exactly the way that you're talking about, where they want that sort of like deep connection with, you know, friends that are also men, they, they want to be able to say things like, like, love you, man, or like, I appreciate you or like say affectionate things, but they always gotta, they always gotta throw it in at the end and say no homo. Like, like, where's that reflex come from? Because like a lot of times it's not from people that are, you know, you know, homophobic or whatever. It's from people that are, are, I think it's serving a linguistic function of, of people adding that in as a delineator saying like, this is not a romantic compliment. It's a, you know, affectionate friendship compliment or whatever. Um, and uh you know that's that that carries with it a lot of baggage that's not good like that 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 needs to go away too but i think it stems from the the overcorrection of now um every what you end up is with the overcorrection in the same place that you were when you started you've gone in a circle right like you're still in a place where now it's now it's a good thing quote unquote but like now every male to male affection is is seen as gay but it's a good thing as opposed to every male male affection is seen as gay but it's a bad thing but yeah. there needs to be a, a, another option here where it's male to male affection that is a good thing and not gay as well um because that can happen and in fact should happen and it's probably bad that a lot of men 
feel like it can't be that way without having to throw in no homo every sentence, you know? Yeah. And I mean, and I will say that I do think an element of this is because as you mentioned, it's an overcorrection and overcorrections are a natural element of any form of correction, right? It, it just happens that way. Whenever society moves, there's always a, like this rebound effect. And I do think that one of the goal, like, you know, one of the, one of the things we have to achieve in order to achieve this goal is normalization of non heterosexual relationships. Um, you know, normalization of, of, of the LGBTQ spectrum, I think, is critical to normalizing this uh, male-to-male, like, non-LGBTQ uh, relationship. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, like, it, it's it's just it's frustrating getting well, there and, and not being able to communicate nuance. <laughs> I think there's an aspect of this that's, that's sort of almost agendered in the sense that, like, in general, we have a lot of societal pressure to interpret any affection at all as romantic yes like um it's like i've i've noticed this with like uh female friends that i'm close to you know like i'll have some people say like does not bother your wife and i'll be like what why would it i don't want to sleep with them they're my friends and i'm married and monogamous like that's such a weird question to me, but like, it's because there's this expectation that any form of affection or closeness is inherently romantic, which is not the case. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. And it's, you know, and, and, and this actually gets into a few other issues. And I mean, like, like, yeah, the, the best, the best man in my wedding was a woman, uh, closest, the closest friend of mine, uh, one of the closest friends of mine throughout my life, uh, has, is, is a woman. And, and yeah, I caught some side eye and, 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 and bad word about that at the time and continued and it's, yeah. And it's a similar kind of a thing. Like, no, I can, ha you, you should be able to healthily have friends of the opposite gender and of the like opposite, um, attraction, right? Like that's an, that's a, that's a healthy element of being able to recognize human beings. Like, you know, you shouldn't uh entirely quantify your your measure of other people by how attracted you are to them and and i think that's an important like part of that and so wrapped up in that is the ability to have friendships between straight men and gay men requires this nuance to exist in this to uh, to allow for yeah exactly what you just hit on this i the uh, the ability to have um to have these kind of friendships without it becoming a romance, without there being that romance attached to it, to have depth with another person without there being romance attached to it. And it's, you know, and I think this is like one of those things that straight men, I think, unfairly um, worry about is the idea of like, oh, well, can I become really close friends with a gay man and like it not become something? And like, yeah, no, you 100, if you're, a, if you should be able to do this with the amount, right amount of emotional uh, intelligence and emotional health yes you can a hundred percent maintain a relationship with somebody who has the potentiality to be attracted to you um healthily this is this directly parallels with being able to have relationships uh between straight men and straight women like yeah you should be able to do that you should be able to carry on healthy relationships friend-based relationships with people with the like uh possibility of attraction existing between you yeah. And if you ever had a relationship like that, like a friendship that, you know, you've sort of mutually disarmed 
the because I think a lot of the a lot of the um, <clears throat> the fear that that at least I've personally experienced and I imagine uh, other men have experienced in um, opening up that possibility between close friends is you know, there's that that feeling of of intense risk um, sort of uh, sort of similar to like uh, going and asking your crush out you know, uh, not, not to muddy the waters here by making it a romantic analogy, but like, you know, it, it has a similar, uh, feel to it, which is why I mentioned it where there's this risk, like when either you ask your crush out or you start trying to show affection to your non-romantic affection to your male friends, there is this feeling of, they might say no, or in the case of the, you know, the friend, like they might make fun of me. They might say like, oh, that's super gay, man. I don't know why you got to be like all emotional up in here. Like we're just trying to have a good time. And like, and that, that, that you'll be sort of ostracized or, or otherwise rejected and that that will sort of permanently taint uh, the friendship there. And I think like all that, like weird, like heteronormative sort of stuff wrapped up in it really interferes with our ability to sort of disarm but like once you get to that point once you take that risk and you aren't punished for it and you have those friends it is like so cathartic to be able to have a friend or several friends that you can talk to about like deep personal stuff and, and not have to be worried about you know, all the layers of, of irony and, and distance that we sort of put between ourselves and others generally, and to be able to just sort of like really hear what, you know, what the people that you're closest to feel about you, um, you know, because uh, I feel like a lot of times, particularly in male-male relationships, like male-male friendships, we have a, a lot of irony poisoning, which is a term that I've, I don't know if it's, if it's ubiquitous or not. Uh, I, I heard it <laughs> locally among some friends uh, who use that term to describe this, this sense in which like, oh, we're, all, we're, we're wrapped in so many layers of being ironic or being, you know, like joking around or whatever that we, we lose the, you, you get poisoned to the point that you can't tell what's sincere and what's not. And I feel like a I've had a lot of male friends that I feel like our friendship is irony poisoned. Um, and, you know, I lose the ability to tell what's sincere and what's not. And uh, that's a real problem because once you reach that point, you, there's always the question in your head of, do they actually like, like me for me? Or do they like who I'm pretending to be? Or do I like who they're pretending to be? Do we have a real friendship here? Or is this just like a uh, acquaintance type thing? Like there's, there's a lot of self-doubt that comes with that. And I, um, I've, as uh, particularly over the past year, made like a really active attempt to sort of like get layers of this irony protection out of my behavior, um, because I found that it's uh, really unpleasant. <laughs> it keeps friends at a distance, and I don't like it. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's really valid. I've never really thought about that or processed that. And it's, it's true. I, I, I mean, like, yeah, I've been guilty of that too. And it's often, and I mean, like, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this as I'm processing it. So some apologies and how that comes out. But I mean, I'm, you know, I, uh, 
I've definitely like over the years seen that in differences between friendships that I've had of like, you know, friendships with that were really sincere and really deep. And then friendships that were maybe a little bit more superficial and like people who are like acquaintances, but like, you know, constant acquaintances and where we yeah we we like in different ways we develop yeah these like layers of irony between us where we were it was like everything was a joke there was never much severity between our interactions and uh i've yeah i've never thought about it definitely did toxify our relationships in a lot of ways where we couldn't have any real depth i never really knew them and i mean and i was why like those were people who whenever i moved or um we other way we otherwise built some distance between us there never felt like this big gulf between us because we were never close to begin with right and so that's where like i feel like that's where a lot of this uh kind of modern american loneliness often really hits home where you know you feel lonely even though you're in a sea of people you feel lonely even though you have a ton of friends you feel lonely even though you go to parties every single night and i mean like yeah that was like my teens almost everybody i knew in my late teens and early 20s we had the, this like kind of an ironic relationship we hung out we drunk a lot we did drugs and uh we completely joked and took absolutely nothing sincere and honest we never had real talks we just played poker and video games and stuff like that was that was why like you know i would have those superficial relationships with people yet still feel lonely and kind of crushed by that loneliness and uh yeah sorry i'm again i'm talking about this while literally processing it oh so. yeah no i mean <laughs> i think that's that's part of the appeal here is that like you know a lot of times we're going to be talking about stuff that you're like not 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 from the perspective of we've come out the other side and here's the the real answer to really improve your life it's more just uh hey, you know, here's the thing that I've noticed about what it's like to be a, a dude in America. Uh, here's what I currently think about it, what I'm kind of working through and what sucks, what I feel like sucks and what I feel like, you know, is is beneficial or, you know, um, and, and I think I think the live processing of that is a part of that because um, I definitely know that like in just the couple episodes we've done so far, I've, you know, had moments of like, oh yeah, you know, huh uh and thinking about it um so to me like that's kind of half the point <laughs> yeah i mean there are these um you know they're on motor trend tv there are these videos of master mechanics 40 years in the industry who have a million dollar garage with seven million dollars in tools and every single thing you could wish of or we're not that we're the guys on YouTube with a roll of duct tape and some WD-40, and we're going to fuck around and find out. <laughs> oh, man. That, my adult life summarized, right? <laughs> uh, so as we part ways, uh, I plugged the first thing last time. Uh, is there anything you would like to plug this evening on the podcast? I mean, you know, I've mentioned it before. Red Dirt Collective is a local community organization. Uh, as of time of recording, we have a, uh, it, by the time this comes out, it will be way too late for anyone to get this as the message, but, um, you know, uh, as of time of recording, we have a, a big barbecue event thing happening this weekend that I'm very excited about literally tomorrow. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we do, uh, especially as COVID has, uh, declined, uh, locally speaking and, uh, we're sort of getting slowly back to normal. We're really uh, trying to ramp up and get some like big community events, get people connected to each other, 
talking and and hopefully developing some some deeper genuine connections uh, as part of that. So if you're into community building and organizing, look and you're in the Norman, Oklahoma area, uh, look us up. A hundred percent agreed. I'm going to be there. I'm doing one of my first MC events uh, at that uh, for since like those teenage and late 20 or early 20 year old uh, me when I used to DJ. Um, uh, so I would like to plug Grand Gentleman. It's an organization out of Oklahoma City. Uh, also uh, often on the internet is Grand Gents. They do a lot of similar work to what we're doing here today. Um, they uh, uh, reach out to uh, teens and young men in the black community. They provide suits, scholarships, and teaching on how to uh, grow as a man and become a man in uh, the modern American world. Uh, or, or for that matter, I should say a masculine presenting person in the modern American world. Hell yeah. So thank you all for joining us this morning, evening, afternoon, or whatever time of day it is. Join us again next week. Thank you.